you showed up to help assemble meals, to help distribute the meals, and also to help distribute. Thankful for your participation. I'm, I'm grateful to Wendy and Hannah Miller and Pat Owens, who is not here today. Apparently, she's got a son she wanted to go here preach today instead of me. I don't know why. Uh, but they, they did a great job of putting together this event and, and, and uh, working out the kinks and the details, and it's going to only get better from here as we do it again next year. Uh, so many thanks to all of you who contributed and helped. We are grateful we were able to pass out 150 meals uh, to one single apartment complex on South Lee Street. We were also able to distribute the vast majority of the coats we had left over from the coat drive. So all in all, it was a great day of serving our community, as has been every Go and Do event this year. And remember, Go and Do is not a once, one-time theme. It is a ministry we're going to continue doing. And we've already got plans with the, the menu is out there on the table if you missed last week's presentation. And we'd love for you to start making plans now of how you can participate in those Go and Do ministries and efforts in this coming year. With that being said, I want to tell you a story about one of our former presidents, President Calvin Coolidge. On one occasion, he invited some friends from his hometown to dine with him at the White House. Now, his friends were unfamiliar with the etiquette that one should possess when they're in the presence of the president or in a formal dining situation as they would experience at the White House. So apparently they decided to just imitate the president. Whatever the president did, they were going to do the exact same. And so whatever utensil the president picked up from the table, that's the utensil they picked up from the table. Whatever food he was eating at that moment, that's the food they ate. So the entire time they were simply imitating the president, they thought nothing can go wrong if we do this. Well, time came for coffee after dinner. And when the coffee was delivered to the table, President Coolidge poured himself some coffee, but instead of pouring it in his cup, he poured it into the saucer. And so everyone that was there thought that's what you did when you were dining in such an occasion. So they poured their coffee into their saucer as well. And then they watched as the president got a little uh, milk and a little sugar and added it to the coffee in his saucer, and they did the same. And they prepared themselves to pick up their saucer with their hands and lift it to their mouth to take a sip when all of a sudden President Coolidge lifted his saucer off the table and placed it on the ground where a cat ran over to start drinking. <laughs> Suddenly they realized that their choice of imitation was not necessarily a foolproof plan. Now here's the thing, we all have imitated somebody before. We understand that imitation can be a great learning device, but it all depends on who or what you're imitating. And I think that's why when we journey to Scripture, there are some very specific parameters given to us about imitation. It's in Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 1 where we're instructed to be imitators of God as beloved children. We're told who to imitate. We're told to be imitators of God. If you're imitating God, it is foolproof. If you're imitating God, then you are absolutely always going to do the right thing. And when we think about imitating God, we think of particular verses that call on us to be like Him. We might think of passages like Luke chapter 6 and verse 36, 
where we're told to be merciful as your Father is merciful. We might think of uh, Colossians chapter 3 and verse 13, where we're told to forgive as God has forgiven us. Or we might think about 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 15, where we're told that as he who called you is holy, you also be holy. We know there are passages in Scripture that tell us to emulate, emulate God. We know there are passages that tell us to imitate God. But oftentimes we relegate that imitation to the specific parameters we find in verses as the ones I've mentioned. And here, as I approach our next particular study in the book of Acts, it came to my attention that maybe we need to dig a little deeper sometimes to discover the attributes of God that are not so readily readable from Scripture so that we can imitate those characteristics as well. You see, when we come to Acts chapter 10 and, and the first half of Acts chapter 11, we come to the story of the conversion of Cornelius. This is a significant story in the book of Acts. The, the, the story of Acts from this point forward goes through a significant transition because up to this point, the church has been focused on Jewish converts. The church has been focused on taking the gospel to people of the Jewish faith. But now we get to Acts chapter 10, and Cornelius enters the scene, and God reveals to Peter that he's opening the doors to the Gentiles as well, and this whole change in philosophy for the church happens. Because after Acts chapter 10 and 11, we're going to start seeing the focus become missional in territories belonging to Gentiles. It's a critical chapter in the story of the church. But as I studied this chapter, in expecting myself to be doing a sermon on mission or a sermon on, on, on not being, uh, or, or a, a sermon on being impartial and, and things like that, I realized that as I read the chapter, there's two gigantic attributes of God that stand out that we should be imitating. And so this morning, I want us to focus on two things we can learn about God from this chapter, and then I want us to see how we can imitate those attributes of God in our own lives. The first thing I notice about God in this chapter is that God is attentive. God is attentive. So if you look here in the story of Acts, you'll see that Cornelius is praying, and God hears his prayer. Now, God being attentive to someone's prayer doesn't necessarily seem all that surprising to us. We've, we know that God hears our prayers. But I want to bring your attention this morning to something the Bible says about God's ability to hear all people's prayers. Scripture actually teaches that God hears the prayers of the righteous, but not the unrighteous. So if you'll hold your place in Acts chapter 10, we're going to be going there in just a minute and focusing on the, the, the study of this chapter. I want you to notice something that's said way back in John chapter 9. It's in John chapter 9 that Jesus healed a man who was born blind, and after that man had been healed, he had to defend himself, and he had to defend Jesus to the Pharisees. Now the Pharisees had concluded that Jesus must be a sinner because he healed this man on the Sabbath day. That was breaking the law in their eyes, and so Jesus must be a sinner. 
But the man born blind argued that Jesus could not be a sinner on the grounds that God heard him. So he says this in John chapter 9 and verse 31. He says, We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. See, his, he has this conclusion. God doesn't listen to, God doesn't hear sinners. And that conclusion is not something he just came up with willy-nilly. There is biblical basis for it in the Old Testament. In fact, there are multiple passages that support his conclusion, but I'm going to just share one as I skip ahead this morning, and that's the one that appears in Isaiah chapter 59, verses 1 and 2. This passage says, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, or his ear dull that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. It's interesting in these two verses that an Isaiah initially claims that there is nothing outside the reach of God's ear, but then he footnotes that claim by saying that one's unresolved sin, that is sin that has not been atoned for and or repented of, that unresolved sin causes God to be distant and hidden to the degree that he is unable to hear that individual's prayer. Thus, Isaiah seems to be saying that anyone who persistently and impenitently engages in sin creates a situation in which God can't hear their prayers. So, Scripture teaches that there is a communication disconnect between the sinner and God. However, that does not mean that God doesn't hear the prayers of sinners. Or, let me say it another way, that doesn't mean that God does not hear the prayer of those who are not categorically one of his people. Think about Nineveh for a moment. Wasn't, the, or weren't the citizens of Nineveh heard by God when they prayed penitently? And didn't he respond to their prayer positively? See, I bring this up because we get to this case of Cornelius here in Acts chapter 10. And Luke clearly states that God heard the prayers of Cornelius. Look at verse 4 of Acts chapter 10. The angel that appeared to Cornelius said, Your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And Cornelius' prayer did more than just ascend when he told Peter about his experience down in verse 31. Look at what he said. He quoted the angel as saying, Your prayer has been heard, and your alms have been remembered before God. Now, here's what's interesting to me. We can read all these descriptions about Cornelius' faith, but Cornelius has not been baptized yet. Cornelius' prayers are heard before he received the Holy Spirit, which happens in verse 44. And Cornelius' prayers are heard before he was baptized, which happens in verse 48. 
And the point is that God was attentive to Cornelius before Cornelius was obedient to him. God was listening to Cornelius before Cornelius submitted to his will. See, this is an indicator of how great the love of God is, how great his love is for mankind. Because he heard Cornelius and he hears us before we deserve to be heard. He listens to us before he calls us his children even. He pays attention to us even when, according to Romans chapter 5, we're still weak, we're still sinners, we're still his enemies. He's listening. He's attentive. God so loved the world, not only did he send his son for us, but he's listening and he cares, and he's attentive. Cornelius demonstrates to us that he's one of these individuals that has not entered the kingdom of God yet, but he's absolutely heard by the king of kings. There is a beauty in the fact that God loves us enough to listen to us even when we're still in our state of sin. God is attentive. The other thing I notice about God in this story is that he is intentional. Now, what does it mean to do something intentionally? Doing something intentionally means you do it on purpose. It means you're doing something deliberately. But what is God intentionally purposefully, deliberately doing here. When you examine the whole of Acts chapter 10, you realize that God is intentionally, purposefully, deliberately expanding the parameters of his kingdom. Under Mosaic law, if you wanted to be numbered among God's people, you had to, one, either be of a particular ethnicity, you had to be an Israelite. Or, if you were not of that particular ethnicity, you had to be proselytized. A proselyte is a Gentile convert to Judaism. If you're a proselyte, that means you worship the God of Israel and no one else. You are monotheistic. It means you keep Mosaic law, you obey all the laws that the Jews obey, especially the law of circumcision. But despite those factors, despite the fact that you worship the one true God, despite the fact that you keep his law, you still have some limitation, particularly when it came to the temple. You see, a, a proselyte was still relegated to the outermost court at the temple. The temple was set up so that you were, re, uh, you were allowed in certain courtyards based upon your ethnicity, based upon your gender, and based upon your role. If you were not an Israelite, you could only go into the outermost court known as the court of the Gentiles. You could not go into the temple proper. You could not approach the actual structure within the 
the, uh, the, the altar of burnt offering set and, and wherein the Ark of the Covenant was positioned. You couldn't get close to that building. You had to stay in the courtyards outside the building simply because of your ethnicity. But God never intended for things to stay that way. See, a proselyte could be as devoted of a follower as any Jewish individual, but he could not get closer to God than a Jewish individual, at least in the way that temple was structured. And the point, and the point is that under Mosaic law, ethnicity mattered more than obedience. Well, we find out in Ephesians chapter 3 that God's eternal purpose was to grant access to Him for everyone through faith in Christ Jesus our Lord. God didn't intend for it to stay that way, where ethnicity dictated how close you could get to Him. God intended for everyone to have that advantage, for everyone to have that access through faith in Christ Jesus. But the original members of his covenant people, his new covenant people, they had a hard time accepting the change. See, up to this point, the church had not only, excuse me, the church had only, had only accepted Jews and proselytes. In other words, they had only accepted people who had submitted to circumcision. To them, the uncircumcised were unclean. And that's why God had to intervene. So look at what happens in Acts chapter 10 between verses 9 and 15. Let's read that together. The last half of verse 9, we're told that Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray, and he became hungry and wanted something to eat. But that while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance. That's how I feel on my diet sometimes. And he saw the heavens open, something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten, eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time, saying, What God has made clean, do not call common. Then we find out this happened three times total. The same vision occurred to Peter three times. Now, initially, Peter was perplexed as to the meaning of this vision, but after receiving divine direction to go to Cornelius' house, he came to understand its meaning. And he declared this, if you look at verse 28 of Acts chapter 10, he declared, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. They had this policy back then. You don't go eat in a Gentile's house because you don't know if you might come in contact with something that will make you unclean. Since Gentiles did not observe the law of Moses, you could easily enter that house and automatically become unclean. So don't eat with Gentiles. That was the policy. That's what he's referring to here. He continues that thought and says, But God, God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. 
And then he followed up that statement by saying this in verse 34. Truly, I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. Now, here's what stands out to me. Peter wasn't thinking, hey, we need to share the good news with other nations. He wasn't thinking, you know what? Those Gentiles haven't heard the gospel yet. We better go to them. They had received the Great Commission. The Great Commission had told them to take the gospel to every nation. Jesus had specifically told them before he ascended that their mission was to take the gospel from Jerusalem into Samaria, all parts of Judea, and then to the ends of the earth. But it hadn't crossed their mind to do that yet. They were still targeting locally. And they were still targeting ethnically. Peter had to receive a divinely inspired vision three times in order to open his mind to the possibility of Gentiles becoming Christians. He had to receive divine guidance to accept the invitation from Cornelius' servants to go to Cornelius' house and share the good news. And he had to witness the same divine activity that he experienced on Pentecost in order to consent to these Gentiles being baptized. And the point is that even though Jesus' disciples weren't moving in the direction of Gentiles, God was. God intentionally orchestrated events to ensure that you and I, for the most part, that you and I could share in the good news, that you and I could become children of his, that you and I could enter into the kingdom of God. God intentionally, deliberately made a choice to ensure that every person could receive salvation. He did it when he sent his son, and he's doing it again when he sends his messenger to share the good news in the house of Cornelius. God is intentional about what he does because he loves you. God has set his love upon you. He has chosen to love you. And in this moment, he's pushing Peter in the direction of sharing the news of that love with people who hadn't heard it yet, with people who had been kept on the outside. So when we read through Acts chapter 10, it stands out to me that we have a God here who is attentive, and we have a God here who is intentional. But how are we to imitate these attributes of God? These are very specific characteristics. These address how God hears our prayers. These address how God has chosen us. How are we going to imitate those attributes? And that's what I want us to spend the rest of our time talking about. Because I find it very interesting that the primary characters in this story kind of demonstrate for us how to imitate God. See, first we are to imitate God by being attentive to his will. The thing that stands out to me about Peter in this story is how observant he was, how attentive he was. 
This guy who failed to comprehend that Jesus had to die, and as a result, he rebuked Jesus for saying that he did. In Matthew chapter 16, verse 21 and 22. This guy who failed to keep his eyes on Jesus when he was granted permission by Jesus to walk on water. This guy who didn't recognize the resurrected Jesus when he called out to him from the banks of the Sea of Galilee, despite having encountered his resurrected appearance multiple times, this guy is suddenly so keen. He's learned from his lack of observation in the past, and he's now acutely aware of God's activity in the present. If you notice, Peter was attentive to the Spirit's directions. After receiving a vision from the Lord, we're told in Acts chapter 10, verse 19 through 23, that the Spirit said to Peter, Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them Accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. And as Peter explained in verse 29, he went without objection, meaning he didn't question whether or not he should go. He unhesitatingly followed the Spirit's lead. He's attentive to the Spirit's direction. He's also attentive to kingdom opportunities. It appears Peter that didn't know exactly why the Spirit sent him to Cornelius' house, but after seeing that crowd gathered there, He made the most of his opportunity. In verse 34 of Acts 10, we're told that he opened his mouth and he shared the gospel with them. He talked about Jesus' death. He talked about Jesus' resurrection. And he talked about how one can receive forgiveness of sins. And the end result of his preaching was that all who heard, that's verse 44, all who heard were baptized in the name of Jesus in verse 48. The point is that Peter In this moment, when he arrived at Cornelius' house, he didn't know why he was there, but he was attentive to kingdom opportunities, and he took them when they showed themselves. And finally, it's worth noting that Peter was attentive to God's word, because when he recounted Cornelius' conversion to the church, the church in Jerusalem, he explained how he made a connection between what he experienced there in Caesarea and what he had heard Jesus teach. If you look at Acts chapter 11, verse 15 through 17, he said, As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them, just as on us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. He's referring back to Acts chapter 1 and verse 5, something Jesus said just before his ascension. Jesus had told them, John baptized with water, but you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And in Acts chapter 2 and verse 1, that's what happens. And Peter goes, okay, I remember what Jesus said. I remember how that was fulfilled on the day of Pentecost with me, and now I'm seeing it happen again. He's connecting the dots with the Word of God. He's attentive to what Jesus had taught, and he's applying it. And here's the whole point. Here's what I'm building up to. We must strive to be attentive like Peter, but attentiveness can only exist when we listen. So I think about Mary and Martha, the friends of Jesus. When Jesus visited their home, we're told that Martha was distracted with much serving while Mary sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. That's Luke chapter 10, verse 38 through 42. Martha was taking care of all the preparations. She was constantly serving, and we commend that. We admire that. 
All that she's doing is great. But she got frustrated. Frustrated at the fact that her sister wasn't helping her. And she took the issue to Jesus. She said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me me to serve alone? She thinks Jesus is going to criticize or condemn or correct her sister. But Jesus' response was, you are worried and troubled about many things. One thing is needed. And Mary has chosen that good part. In other words, Jesus indicated that between Mary and Martha, Mary made the better choice because she chose to be attentive to Jesus. She chose to listen. You know, God instructed the apostles to listen to his beloved son in Mark chapter 9, verse 7. And Jesus himself told Pilate in John chapter 18, verse 37, everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. If we want to be imitators of God, we need to be attentive. So one question we need to consider this morning is does Jesus have my undivided attention? I have God's undivided attention. And if I'm going to be an imitator of Him, then shouldn't He have mine? We see in the life of Peter in this story how he had gone from somebody who often didn't see, didn't recognize, didn't pay attention to what was going on with God's will. And now, all of a sudden, in Acts chapter 10, he's completely attentive to how God is working, and he's following its lead. That should be us. And one final thought as we wrap this up as quickly as I can is that we imitate God by being intentional about discipleship. I want you to think about Cornelius for a moment. Cornelius did not inherit his faith like Timothy did from his mother and grandmother. Cornelius was not educated in religion like Paul was. Cornelius chose his faith. He didn't grow up in a Jewish household. He didn't go off to school for Judaism. He's just deliberately making a decision that his God is going to be the God. And he's going to be obedient to the best of his ability. If you read through the story of Cornelius, you find a few descriptions of him. He's described as devout in verse 2 of Acts chapter 10. That means he was devoted to the Lord. That means that God was central to everything he did. His decisions were based off of what pleased the Lord. And you can see it evidenced in the fact that he is known for his constant prayers and his generous His devotion to the Lord manifests itself in real-life activity. Not only do we find out that Cornelius is devoted, but if you skip down a little ways to verse 
uh, 22, as his servants are speaking to Peter and telling Peter about Cornelius, they describe him as well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation. He's got a fantastic reputation. Now, isn't that something that as Christians we're called to have? To be what's called blameless? This guy is living like a Christian before he's a Christian. And there's one other thing that's interesting to me. When he invites Peter to come to his house, he's a centurion. He's in a pretty noble status. This is his opportunity to meet with Peter. But he doesn't relegate it to himself. If you look at what he does, Cornelius goes out and called together his relatives and close friends, according to verse 24. This guy's evangelistic before he's a Christian. He's making sure everybody he knows is going to be there to hear the good news. This guy is all in before he even knows who Christ is. This guy is deliberate, intentional, purposeful about his faith. And you've got to understand, following the Lord requires such decisiveness. When Jesus invited Peter, Andrew, James, and John to become his disciples, we're told in Luke chapter 5 and verse 11 that they brought their boats to land, left everything, and followed him. That's so impressive to me. Because their decision to follow Jesus is done without hesitation, without looking back, without second-guessing. Their decision to follow was so decisive, so deliberate, so final, and so focused. Compare that to one of the would-be disciples who's mentioned in Luke chapter 9 and verse 61. A man offered to follow Jesus, but requested time to first say well to his family. And that seems like a reasonable request. But Jesus did not grant that potential disciple's request. He said, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. And what Jesus is saying is a reference to the singular focus that a farmer must have when operating a plow in order to prevent his field from having crooked rows. And the point that Jesus is making is that discipleship necessitates that singular, devoted focus. You see, discipleship requires decisiveness and always has. When the Lord escorted his people out of Egypt to the promised land, they stood with Joshua ready to land. Do you remember what Joshua told them? I'm certain most of you do because I'm sure, like me, several of you have this in your house somewhere. He stood before them and said, Choose this day whom you will serve. And then went on to declare that for him and his family, they're choosing the Lord. But he put a choice before them. It's always a choice. Whether or not we follow God, whether or not we surrender to his will is always a choice. It's a deliberate, intentional decision.
And when Jesus spoke to the crowds, presenting what we call the Sermon on the Mount, presenting this almost ethical presentation of what it means to be a citizen of the kingdom of heaven, he told them they had a choice. You can see it in Matthew chapter 7, verse 13 and 14. He said, you can choose to enter by the narrow gate. Or you can choose to enter the wide gate. The path behind that narrow gate is hard, but it leads to life. And the path behind that wide gate is easy, but it leads to destruction. It's your choice. Your choice with which path you go. But there's no bouncing between the two. You need to be intentional about discipleship, like Cornelius. Intentional, like your Lord, because the choices you make today impact your eternity. So don't waver. You can't ride the fence and be a disciple. You're either all in or you're all out. But it's your choice. This morning, I kind of take an odd view of Acts chapter 10 or a, a unique view of Acts chapter 10, focusing on who God is and how we can imitate Him. And our God is attentive. And it may be today that you need to take your request to Him. You need to ask for us, for the family of God, to consult Him in prayer on your behalf as well. You may have some deep-seated issues that need His attention. And if you do, I invite you to come. It may be that You haven't made the choice to follow Him. He's chosen you, so at this point, the choice is up to you. Maybe you need to make that intentional decision today. And we invite you to come. You may have heard before that the sincerest form of Or you may have heard before that imitation is the sincerest form of what? Flattery. Look up the definition for flattery. It's not really a great word. It carries with it the sense of insincerity. So what I want you to hear today is that when it comes to imitating God, imitation is the sincerest form of fidelity. Imitation is the sincerest form of fidelity. And you and I have been called to imitate Him. If you want to do that, won't you join us today? All together we stand and sing.